Hello, beloved listeners. This is Adrian. just letting you know that we are heading into our summer break. If you listen to us regularly, you know we take a summer break for a couple months and then we will be back in the fall with more sibling interviews. We actually have some um, really exciting ones still coming up and we, we thought we would just do half the season of these, but there's so many great siblings out there and more of you keep coming out of the woodwork. So um, we're excited to bring you more, but first we're going to rest and shift and be in the summertime and get sun on our skin. And we hope you do the same. We love you so much. Be good to yourselves. The apocalypse is happening all the time. Love you queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living on Dakota and Anishinaabe land currently known as Minneapolis. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, a writer, student of miracles and love and transformation, emergent strategist and pleasure activist living on Anishinaabe territory currently known as Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And we are deep into our sibling mini-series. And today we have a really special treat for y'all. We we have Makani Bemba (laughs) and Robin D.G. Kelly. And these two are, um, I think... For both Autumn and I, people who have really shaped us and shaped our movement participation in a variety of ways. Um, Makani Mm -hmm. founded the Praxis Project and has done her strategy work now through Higher Ground Change Strategies and actually just stepped up to co-hold Black uh, Black Lives Matter through a massive leadership transition. um, Okay. And I have had the honor of learning up close and personal with Makani over the past what decade um, as a co-facilitator and gotten to be in the rooms that she shaped. And I just think the world mm-hmm. of her brain, um, she's the strategist in holding change. Um, so I'm just like, yep. And then Robin DG Kelly <laughs> is a historian, American historian, author of some of the most popular texts that all of us be reading. Um, some of them, Freedom Dreams, Race Rebels, Your Mama's Dysfunctional. I have also gotten a chance to be with Robin on panels talking about Grace Boggs. I've been in spaces where I got to see Robin show up um, in movement space as someone who is not holding an academic role as something that separates you, but something that helps you contribute mm-hmm. and keep building the way that we think and shaping our critical skills, um, critical analytical skills and historical skills. So this is really exciting for us. You are two of the people that I didn't know were siblings for a long time. And then when I found out you were siblings, it was so <laughs> thrilling to me. I was like, that makes so much sense. This feels so good and so right. So welcome, Makani yep. and Robin, to our show. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so you y'all are so cute. And just so our listeners know, Robin and Makani are in the same space right now, sharing a microphone. And it's the cutest thing. So you just have to imagine in your mind the <laughs> and cutest a thing that ever happened. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to start with just checking in with each other, right? Um, 
It feels like there's so much moving at all times. We are completely different people from the moment when we said yes to do this conversation. <laughs> like life is mm-hmm. changing that rapidly. So we just yeah. always start in with a checking in. How are we doing? How are we doing? Um, Makani, how are you today, my love? How am I doing? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's mm-hmm. a inter- it's always an interesting question, right? Well, yeah. one, I'm mm-hmm. really happy to be here. I, this is the first time I've seen my brother in person in like a year and a half. So this oh, is wow. the first, our first COVID post, well, not well, whatever, mm-hmm. COVID, whatever, epic <laughs> we know what you getting mean. together thing. Wow. So, um, so I'm, so I have all the feelings. I'm like really glad to see him and, and looking forward to hanging out with my niece and nephew and. And, mm-hmm. you know, sister in love and the whole thing. So I feel really great in that respect. And also just wrapping my head around all the newness of all the things. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, I could say the same thing. I mean, um, you know, both Makani and I, you know, dealt with COVID mm-hmm. uh, from a distance. Uh, uh, we both, mm-hmm. you know, dealt with this very long year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out ways to work together uh, despite the distance and despite all the other tasks we have at hand. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, it's great to see her. And, and I literally just walked in the door like 10 minutes before we got on, set up everything. Wow. So we haven't really talked. Oh. And so this, in fact, not only have we not talked, but we've never had this conversation before right. about our journey. Oh my I mean, this God. is it. So this is like, you know, Yay. I don't know. We should send send you all a, th- a check for the therapy. Um, <laughs> but of course, you know we, we don't. We're merchant strategy. We're not paying for stuff. We're just we're, it's you know, just we're it's sharing. All, it's all sharing. It's all <laughs> yeah. part of the ether. Exactly. Right? exactly. Um, we don't pay so, or get paid. <laughs> and, and, and also, it's just great to be with both of you. I mean, I'm such big fans, and there's yes. so many lessons I I learn from both of you. And all every single emergent strategy book that comes out, um, I I get it. Ooh. Like every single one. That's good. Try to okay. <laughs> I was like, that's good. My my I'll take that later. I'll lay down with that and just be like, mm-hmm. yay. Um <laughs> well, and autumn is in every single one. So I'm like, those are our yes. texts. Those are our texts. Um it's great to have y'all here. And I love the present sweetness of that moment that y'all are just seeing each other and we get to be with y'all in this. Woo. Wow. Um, Autumn, how are you, sister? Mm. Oh my God. I'm so happy right now. <laughs> um, and, and I have to say, it's just, it's interesting to know. Um, I think for almost every, almost all of the sibling pairs that we've interviewed so far, it has for, all, for also for them been the first time of being in this particular conversation in this way. Mm-hmm. And it's been so beautiful um, and healing. I think it's been actually very healing for me. And I think healing for everyone that we've, we've, talked to so far so um but me right now um I'm hot sitting in my sitting in myself and I had to <laughs> I had to turn off all of the fans and close the windows in order for the room audio to be okay for this recording and we're having a heat wave in Minneapolis right now so I'm just sitting here being with myself stewing um stewing and um also um. Yeah, just the I'm, I really appreciated Makani what you were bringing forward about just the the newness. It's um. 
I, f- I feel like I'm finding my way every day. It's kind of trying to reorient to um, who can I interact with now and and how have we changed and what's the same and what's different. And so last year when we did the Apocalypse Survival miniseries, I interviewed these survivalist trainers um, who taught me this tool called the OODA loop. Um, which is something you practice in the survival scenario. You observe, orient, decide, act. Observe, orient, decide, act. And I've just had that in the front of my brain for the last couple of weeks that every day feels like. uh, I just feel like I'm OODA looping through my day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Adrienne, how are you, my sister? I am. Are you stewing as well? Is it hot in Detroit? It's hot in Detroit. And I walked... I just went outside and was, I was like, this day has been very hard. And it's been one of those days that's hard where I'm like, oh, like I can see the logistical reasons it's hard and I can see the emotional reasons it's hard. And then someone's like, and also astrologically, like it's hard. So there's no, there's no like, escape <laughs> of the heart. It's just like this hard day. You know, sometimes it's a hard Friday. Um, but I went outside and I was stomping it out. You know, I was like, okay, I need to move my body, move this energy and I used my Joe Kata, my Joe stick. I don't know. I can sh- I'm yes. showing this. I love that here. you have it with you and right I just now. <laughs> my head for like, I was just like, I'm feeling too many feelings and I need to be functional because that's, that's my, my way is I'm a functional person <laughs> at the very least, no matter what's going on, I'm functional. Um, so I think I'm in the, the first O, right? Where I'm just like, I'm just observing that I don't feel functional and I'm supposed to feel functional. And and I'm, I think, in a curiosity around, like, this coming out of the pandemic moment, I feel like everyone around me is dysfunctional, pretending to be functional. And I, I feel like we're all kind of like, can we stop pretending to be functional maybe? Wow. And just – so yeah. I'm, I'm taking the risk with all the things I had to do today. I canceled a thing. I never cancel a thing. I canceled – you know, I was supposed to be like, you know what? I'm feeling too many feelings. And this call yes. will go if, if I'm feeling all these feelings, you know, the walk mm-hmm. helped all that moving the emotion helped. And then this was like on the horizon. This was, I was like, no matter what happens today, universe, <laughs> I'm going to get to talk to Makani and Robin and my sister Autumn and it's <laughs> can't take that away from me and that's going to be good. Like it was that kind of day. So I'm in it. I'm here. I'm so glad you made it to here. I made it to here. <laughs> I made it to here. Yeah, I made it to here. And I will I will say, um, I guess only other thing is kindness eases change. That line from Octavia Butler is really helping me get through the moments right now. Mm, yeah. That I'm really noticing, you know, I'm inside of of like role and identity transitions and life transitions and, and also trying to physically move, which for a Virgo is like the worst. And Mm-mm. I'm like, who's being kind to me during this time? And who can't be kind to me during this time? And I'm moving towards the mm-hmm. kindness. And it's, it's some of the most amazing, strange people being like, girl, I got you. I got you. And other people, I'm like, I expect kindness from you. And they're like, no, I don't got you. <laughs> you wow. know, I'm, like, okay. I'm going to move towards the kindness. Um, I feel like you smashing your bed with your Joe so stick is such a good segue into the flume of rage. <laughs> our flume of rage. <laughs> Angry. 
Plume of Rage. Plume of Rage. Plume of Rage. Plume of Rage. Um, and one of the things I love is that I feel like you always offer the segue into the Plume of Rage. <laughs> it's like your rage is really accessible to you. That's great. Well, this is a big change um, for me. I used to be like, I'm all kindness and flowers. And I was like, actually, I'm pretty ang- angry. I'm actually pretty mm, mad. Pretty angry all the mad. time. <laughs> yeah. So do you do you want to go first with your flume, Adrian? Sure. Well, I have so many things, but the range I wanted to share today is I'm I'm in this process of moving. And so my lightweight flume of rage is about the fact that you're supposed to try to find out if you can move to a place, but no one has floor plans. Like everyone's like, here's five pictures all elongated in some bizarre way. I'm like, I'm 3,000 miles from this place. So can I just see a Mm -hmm. floor plan? Like, what is this place? And they don't have them. (laughs) And then when you email them, they're like, just contact us with questions. And you're like, can I just get a floor plan? And they're like, contact us for a viewing. I'm like, I don't know if I want to see it. I need a floor plan. (laughs) So that's my lightweight flume of rage. Mm -hmm. And then my massive, like, heartbreaking flume of rage is this residential school news that came down this week. Well, the remains of 215 children have been found in a mass grave in Canada. Tributes have appeared at the site on the grounds of a former residential school in British Columbia. It was set up to forcibly assimilate indigenous people and operated for nearly 90 years until closing in 1978. These schools were across Canada. An investigation found many of the 150,000 children who attended them suffered from physical abuse, rape and malnutrition and i'm so angry about that being possible um historically i'm angry about that being possible it feels familiar like i feel like i have that ancestral like it just felt like as soon as i heard that i was like yeah those are my babies too like i just felt this like all so many of us have had this happen in our history and I don't feel yeah. like we're free of it. Like there's this like, oh, we still don't know how to protect our babies. And yeah. when I think about apocalypse, like the main thing, and a lot of times I'm thinking about it, it's like, what about the kids? You know, I'm like, we can have mm-hmm. our action, action adventure, Mad Max, Fury Road, whatever style thing. But I'm like, our babies have to somehow survive this. And when they don't, yeah. they slip through the cracks. And, and who holds those little baby spirits? So I've been sitting with my ancestor altar and I've been really trying to take in the stories, at least hear them. You know, sometimes that's the yeah. only thing we can do is just be like, I will read the story. Because these are all people who are, there's people who are still living. They were like, I was in those residents. I was in those schools. I remember yeah. the kids disappearing. Yeah. I was there. And so that's, that's the rage. That's the range of rage that I'm sitting with today. Mm. Um, yeah. Thank you. floor is open if you are angry and want to say something about it. Makani, mm-hmm. Robin. You go first. Me first? Mm-hmm. This is like what the oldest, oldest thing. Yeah. You're, you're, all, you're always be going first. We do. That's what we do in our family. <laughs> ah. like, oh, the oldest should go first. I'm like, that feels okay. Mm-hmm. Always had to go um, first. <laughs> you know, I actually was thinking about something similarly, Adrian, like mm. I was really um, like touched by the so-called revelation in in a similar way, like, and I and I also because I was sort of deep into Tulsa's 
mm-hmm. stuff and yeah. mm-hmm. and looking at those stories and um and then also hearing stories you know live I live in Jackson Mississippi I hear stories in Mississippi about yeah like you know there was a a a, a wood pulp um kind of factory where folks did like cut down these little trees and did this wood pulping thing and um there was always stories about the owner you know if you asked for more money he would just kill you right and people would say oh there was a bunch of people buried um on that property and then of course um maybe this was maybe about six years ago they found like dozens of of skeletons black folks who had just quote unquote disappeared who had Mm. like wanted you know some reckoning around like how they were treated or things like that and and there's so many so many of our folks who are disappeared yeah um, yes you know yeah. indigenous black um indigenous as you know what what we call latinx folks um just so many people and and just how white supremacy and patriarchy um it like this is what happens. And so how like completely hard, tragic, beyond sad, tired of being sad, Mm -hmm. you feel around all of these stories to the point that you almost throw up a thing to protect yourself from this sadness because it's just so hard. Yeah. Um, And, um, and then just, just like the, there's like the, the way it happens in these big waves where there's like, if it was like five kids, would it be in the New York times? No, but, Mm. but they matter. Right. And so, and um, anyway, so, and just all the stories, all the stories that we carry, some that we know, some we just carry in our bodies. And, um, you know, one of the things that um, I remember my mom saying um, which is interesting because I don't know if she'd say this now, but, <laughs> but I remember when I was younger, um, we were, it was something to do at Vietnam and they had these, you know, pictures of like people being, having been napalmed and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and you had the monks who were like setting themselves on fire and all these things. And, and I was like, basically like at seven, like, that's just a lot, you know, like, you know, and, and, and one of the things she said is, well, um, the least we can do is be a witness. And that always hit me, right? Like, it's like, it is so much harder to live through it as the actual victim than it is to be a witness. And, and even though we do, we do have choices because we get to turn off. Um, so anyway, I just, uh, it's like, that on like feeling the rage, but also feeling like the responsibility and accountability to witness, like you said, to go to like yeah. walk toward it as opposed to um, shut it down. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because I feel, um, I mean, my flume of rage is tied directly to, to death as well. Mm-hmm. And particularly the way we either value, devalue, or hide or erase this death. So the places I'm thinking about, one, Palestine, yep. 66 mm-hmm. children yes. killed in bombing raids. And there's still, and we still have these people like Lloyd Austin and other, you know, Negroes in the Biden administration who will say, you know, we're, we're lockstep with Israel and we're paying for this. 
Um, and so the combination it was sort of three things that once happened that kind of pissed me off. Yeah. Um, one is the ongoing sort of genocidal violence against Palestinians that we underwrite with our tax mm-hmm. dollars. Yep. Two, mm-hmm. the commemoration around Tulsa, which I have to say I'm kind of a, maybe people say I'm curmudgeonly about this, but mm. I I was so disappointed with uh, the way that the commemoration around Tulsa centered around the loss of property. Yes. Uh-huh. And, the, yes. The, the, and how, you know, it's about yes. wealthy people wealthy black people. And the, and the fact yes. of the matter is that one, I always ask the question, what's worth more, um, a black owned hotel or a black porter or domestic worker? Yeah. You know, right. and there's really no discussion yeah. of the deaths of working people. And the point the fact mm-hmm. is that the ma- vast majority of black folks in Tulsa in 1921 were not up and coming and wealthy. That's true. <laughs> right. You know, right. And, and, you know, I've talked about this elsewhere but that kind of pissed me off and it also then linked to this other thing the third thing which is you know there's a lot of celebration around Raoul Peck's um uh, exterminate all the brutes which is the HBO special right. mm. and right. people love it and um they think it's the most radical thing we've seen and I like Raoul Peck I think he's a great filmmaker I think he's right. he's brilliant mm. but I think this was an utter failure it's an utter failure in the way that um, one, you're talking about settler colonialism and you never mentioned Palestine, mm-hmm. never mentioned, you know, the other wow. kinds of violences that took place. Uh, and y- you basically make the kind of make the argument that some things are just too complicated to talk about. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, you don't deal with our refusal to accept the terms of this violence. And unless we do that, any talk about reparations will still come back to property. Like how do you pay for property? That's right. Mm. And I just think we just have to do better in in the public discourse about how we value our our lives. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just gratitude to all three of you for what you are bringing forward. Um, I so I'm I live in Minneapolis, so my um, my flume in this moment is just the Black Death Parade. Um, actually, and I, I should say I don't know the racial identity of the person who was murdered yesterday. Mm by police in uptown Minneapolis. Um, It's just like 10 blocks from where I live. Mm. Um, They haven't released almost any details yet about it, but, um, but you know, it's, it's inevitable for me that the story writes itself because it's like, Oh, there was a warrant for this person's arrest. And I mean, this is the story that the sheriffs are telling that there was a warrant. We tried to arrest them. They produced a handgun and then they were, um, shot through their, you know, car window. And, um, and because, you know, we have so much footage now of armed white men getting, you know, peacefully arrested, booked by the police, you know, it's like, I, it's just, 
it's hard for me to not assume um, it would be impossible for me to not assume the racial identity of this person. Um, mm. And so, and the same day that this killing happened yesterday at like 4.50 a.m., the city sent city workers to George Floyd Square at 38th and Chicago mm. to begin removing the memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, and activists very quickly, you know, did what they could to, um, to erect new barriers and to retake the space. Um, but it's just, it was, it's just so insidious, you know, the way the city continues to just speak out of both sides of its mouth saying on the one hand that we're working with the community, we're respecting the community's wishes, um, and on the other hand, you know, moving under the cover of dark mm-hmm. to um, remove these, you know, pieces of the memorial, these sacred pieces into storage units somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, um, and obviously it's extremely complicated. Right. It's an extremely complicated situation because there is an impact to the people who live directly in that neighborhood for the ongoing uh, memorial site to be there. Um and it's just so clear that there's no actual, um, there's not a sense of cooperative action yeah. being taken to figure out how to, um, how, I, you know, I always think in terms of, you know, I, I felt this for many years, right? That these moments of disaster, moments of apocalypse, they are moments of, they're opportunities to reimagine, to create autonomous spaces yeah to, you know, reconfigure uh, how we even orient to a sense of commons or public space. And this, to me, you know, beyond the George Floyd Square being a memorial, it also is an autonomous zone, Mm -hmm. right? And um, that is so threatening to the city government. Mm. Um, And also it's just profoundly imaginative, you know? Um, So my hope is that there's some way for for us to maintain that um, imaginative autonomous space, but the um, just the feeling in the city is so heightened and so hot, and it is so intense right now. And it's just because we've now had at least two, if not more, additional police killings just in the last couple of months. Yeah. Even with the Chauvin verdict, it's like. There's no, there hasn't been space for any kind of the stretching, healing, you know, putting in the support structures before the next layer of trauma is added on. Um, So it's just, it's very intense. It just continues to be very intense. And, um, And I think to that point you were making, Makani, about the moving toward, you know, I think I have really struggled with this a lot this year. Like living inside of Minneapolis through all of this, I've really struggled with the extent to which I can move toward any of what's happening. Um, And um, trying to, yeah, just maintain structural stability for myself and my family while also not feeling like I'm frozen. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Mm -hmm. I feel like listening to all of us, I really feel this sense of, you know, the body, 
is the territory of freedom. Like I have this sense of like, mm. oh, they're taking our space. They're taking this. They they move us around. But the rage that we feel, it, you know, that rage is the, the ritual. Like you can't take mm. that. <laughs> you can't take that from me. I will not. That. I won't. Mm-hmm. I can't. And it, it, you know, I'm like, oh, I want to calm myself down. Like each week I think we're, maybe we'll stop doing the flume of rage. Like maybe we won't need to do it. And it's like, <laughs> no, like the ritual continues because the, the, the instigation uh, that rage continues and the onslaught yes. continues. So thank you all for practicing it with us being in the ritual mm-hmm. <laughs> of our, of our thank black you. rage together. Um, and, you know, let's take a breath in. If you're at home listening, you might want to burn a little something, you know, feel your feelings. That's one of our favorite things to do. We feel our feelings. Just don't burn your house down. Not today. Okay. Good advice. Good advice. Um, (laughs) And we're going to pivot into this conversation with Makani and Robin that we're really excited to have where we're just going to time travel with y'all. We want to know all the things and um, not all the, you know, whatever you feel like sharing, but, but there is a lot of curiosity, um, you know, I'm an Octavia Butler scholar and, you know, she talks about shaping change. And I feel like you two have shaped so much change in your lifetimes. And so, mm-hmm. you know, these questions are really to understand a little bit about what shaped you, right? So the first most basic question is, where are y'all from? Where are y'all from? That's even complicated. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit. <laughs> I mean, we're, 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 fr- we're from New York. Mm-hmm. Grew, you know, grew up in New York oh. early. Um, <laughs> and it's an interesting story. You know, I'm, I'm going to speak first only because from now on, I'm not going to speak first. And the reason, and there's a reason for this. Yes. It has to do with the fact that Makani's older than me, 18 months and 10 days. So she's my big sister. So she knows more <laughs> and she was there before me. So, mm-hmm. and I want to actually begin with a story about Makani, if you don't, if you don't mind. So, yeah. you know, my, so our, our parents got married in Boston, ended up in New York. Um, I think we were both were born um, basically in Brooklyn. Well, it's in Mount Sinai Hospital, but we kind of were, started in Brooklyn. But then my father mm-hmm. and mother ended up buying a house in Queens, in Hollis. Oh. And so when, uh, and, and I want to begin this, I want McConney to sort of finish this, because this, this had a huge impact on me. Uh, when McConney was old enough to start school in Queens, I was about three and a half, right? And she mm-hmm. was five. I was going on four years old. And she, they sent her to a, um, basically a, a white school that was being integrated. So, I mean, she she dealt with oh. racism in a way that um, Kamala Harris never had to when she got in a bus in Berkeley. And she dealt with racism that actually um, made her sick. And I'll let her talk about it. Like sick, like pneumonia. Wow. And I, in the, my earliest memory outside of my house was standing outside of a hospital on the first floor. And her room was in the first floor of this hospital. And they wouldn't allow kids in. And I just mm-hmm. remember talking to her and, and talking to my mom, because my mom was in there too, our mom, uh, through a kind of a gate, a gated window. Wow. And she was in there sick. Right, because of the racism she dealt with as a five-year-old. That's oh my my, one of my earliest memories. Right, mm-hmm. so I want 
if you could, see, I don't know if you think it's worth sharing, but I just think oh, it's a great story. Well, I, you know, I've written about it too, but um, so um, let's see what to say. That is, that was actually very a pivotal thing. Um, I had started off actually in a black school in the neighborhood because Hollis was changing right before our eyes. It felt like when we moved there, there was like one black family on the block mm-hmm. and then and then like blank and there was like one Polish family who couldn't move and a bunch of black people, right? And they were very sweet. You know, I actually um we used to they used to babysit us, little the the oldest daughter. And so I actually ended up eating Polish food as a very young child. It's like very odd. Mm-hmm. Um and then, um, then um, I mom was approached, I guess, um, or at least she was the one who made the decision. Because I think it's also important to say that our our mother was an activist, yeah. um, and even though there was things that shifted in her life that made her less of that, but mm-hmm. when we were younger, she was very much so, in high school, very much so, mm-hmm. an activist. And so, and I learned from yeah. her friend. Um, Franny Beal, a friend in high school, who is who is her best friend in high school, is also, a, as you know, a famous feminist and all those things that they actually wow. founded this this citywide youth left youth thing together. Um, wow. and, and also another person. Um, oh, gosh, I'm going to forget his name. Um, not Mandrake. It was he's anyway, he's he's a famous trade union person or was a famous trade union person. I'll think of his name in a minute. But the three of them were buddies. And form this thing. So our mother had this history, right? This this radical history that some of which I didn't even learn about until her was that seventy fifth birthday. Was that when when Fran? When came yeah, by, that was yeah. I think her seventy fifth birthday. Um, wow. So anyway, so so my understanding is what happened was that um, that I'm not sure if it was the NAACP or some organization asked for volunteers for folks to send their children to this um, this public school in Little Neck, Long Island. And right. and so there was one of us for each grade. And so um, because that was all they were going to take, they were like, it was going to be revolution, I guess, if it was three for each grade. And it was it was hard. It was very hard. You know, the parents were outside, you know, cursing and throwing things. And we were told, of course, you know, like that was Negro behavior was to, you know, hold your head up, you know, be proud. Do not uh, let, you know, like that was like, um, you know, that was what we were told to do, that we were there to be models and examples. In fact, we were chosen because we had good grades, you know, or we seemed Mm -hmm. smart because we looked a certain way. You know, I had like long pigtails and all these things. right? So we were like Mm -hmm. being these model Negroes in this like really intense situation. In fact, I think I still think of Little Neck as Redneck Long Island um, in my mind. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. um, and not to belabor the whole story, but, um, there was an incident where, you know, when you're that young, you're supposed to hold hands, at least at that point, in the way school was, school mm-hmm. culture, you'd have a buddy, you'd hold hands. And, um, and you know, when you'd come in and out of recess or whatever. And because I was black, I had to walk behind everybody because no one, so no one had to hold my hand. And I was just kind of through with that. I think there was a thing. And then something happened where someone pushed me and I ended up falling and having my knee busted open. And there was a black janitor 
who was the only person who would help me put a Band-Aid on. And I was just like, oh. okay, I'm done. <laughs> like, this is people. like all yeah, no. So then I literally stood outside in the cold in my underwear until I got pneumonia. So I actually mm. <laughs> tried to get pneumonia because my understanding was that was how I could not go to school. So I would literally wow. go outside in just my panties and just kind of like be out in the cold and hope that I get pneumonia. And I finally did. And, and to the extent wow. which I had to be hospitalized. Okay. Um, the good yeah, news. I didn't know. I didn't know that part. <laughs> so the good oh news God. was, I, I just knew that you were sick. Okay. Yeah, well, that's what ha- it's you know. Been and a strategist. That is it's a, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was like, what is? What could I do about this? Because um, not going was not an option. Um, right. You know, because you know we needed to be brave. All these things, but what it did teach me and how it did start me um, on this path of, you know, organizing was one that, you know, there was, in, clearly it was injustice in the world. <laughs> like that was clear. <laughs> clearly. Um, yes. And that people mm-hmm. coming together to fight it helped. And then um, soon after our parents divorced and we were in Harlem, which was so good for me, I, just mm. as nasty as the ground was, I wish I could kiss the ground. It was just mm. so much better to, oh. um, you know, there was like, Black Santa Claus, black every it was like it's like that song, Everything Black. It was like, Everything you know, black. Harlem in the <laughs> in the sort of like, you know, 67, you know, 66. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had a teacher who was a young black teacher who was the antidote. Her name was Miss Willis. Um, mm. and it's also where I met like my longtime forever, like BFF, um, Leslie Hunter Leslie. now had Leslie Hunter Gadsden. We're still friends. And, you know, she just made everything make sense. Right. She, mm. um, we learned about black history. Um, you know, she really supported us and, um, it was just the opposite experience. And it was like, black people are the antidote for everything. And so yes. I just really fell in love with black people. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I fell in love with black people. My experience was very different going to Harlem. So I should, let me back up because one thing you probably need to know is like, so who are our parents? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. um, our mother was born in Jamaica, uh, grew up in Jamaica when she was basically 10 years old, came to this country, lived with an aunt, first in Harlem and also later in Queens. And that's how mm-hmm. she ended up in Queens, going to school with Fran Beale. Um, and she moved here about 1950, back 1950, I okay. think exactly. Um, so I think she was wow. turning 11. So that's her story. Our father, who passed away um, last February, uh, oh. was... It's a little bit of a complicated story, which I won't go into, but he uh, was uh, born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, raised by his aunt and uncle, who raised, who basically kind of informally adopted him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they got together. Uh, and there's two things I just want to add to the story in terms of my, my own experience. One is that, yes, our mother was an activist, but she also dealt with um, I think a very complicated domestic violence situation That's in the right. household, That's right. which suppressed or attempted to yeah. suppress her own desires. So one of the things um, our mom had this capacity to basically do anything, to That's make right. anything, 
to create anything. She was a true artist. So she made wow. these busts using clay of Dr. Martin Luther King and JFK without any training at all. And they were like splitting images, beautiful busts. And in one of my father's fits of rage, he smashed them both, right? Mm. Um, he ended up, for reasons which I won't go into, you know, like leaving and um, going to Seattle, he, you know, had an affair with this woman. They ended up getting married. Now, it is true that we moved from uh, this terrifying place, which for me wasn't so terrifying because I wasn't in school. Like right. I was still at home. Right. I was at home right. with my mother. You know? So I actually, it was Nirvana for me. Right. And then we ended up moving, it was like immediate downward mobility. So our first stop was living with my mother's cousin, Arlene, and her two sons. Uh, and she had just split from her husband and her best friend, Gigi, and her daughter, and me and Makani and my mom, all in, what was it? Three two, be- two, two bedroom, bedroom. Two bedroom two apartment bedroom. in Harlem. Oh, my God. So if, if, you, <laughs> if you haven't had the experience. So like all the single ladies but, and their children. Right, yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a close-knit situation. You know, but that was... <laughs> That's how I, that's how we came to Harlem, but that's how I experienced it. And then yeah. started school and we both went to PS 28, which was on 155th and St. Nicholas, between Amsterdam and St. Nicholas, still there. Um, and I didn't have a Miss Willis. I had a German kindergarten teacher named Miss Klein, oh, who yeah, was a fascist. Was fascist yeah. I mean, oh, straight up fascist. No. I think she was like a Nazi who was. was able to escape you know, the Nuremberg trials or something like that. Um, And then first grade, I had a teacher named Miss Lavatan, a white woman whose punishment for, these are all kids of color, basically, you know, and I, let me be clear, black and Puerto Rican kids and a couple Mm -hmm. of white kids. Um, When you got in trouble, she'd make you stand in a trash can that's right. And say, I'm garbage. That's I'm right. garbage. Oh, I'm garbage. God. That's my introduction to public school. And I'll never forget my the God. day that um, I was uh, taken, I was like home, you know, taking a bath or something. And, and you know, living in New York in those days, um, your, your water was kind of orange or yellow because of the rust. It just was like, no one ever took, you don't take a bath in clear water. (laughs) And we had roaches, you know, we lived with the roaches. You know, you turn off the lights, turn the lights back on and, you know, it's like, just stomp away, right? (laughs) And that was our life. Uh But I remember being in the bathtub and figuring out how to spell the word concentration. Like I figured it out first grade. And I was so excited that I ran to my teacher, Miss Lavatan, and burst out I could spell concentration and she's like you're a liar no so I can I can you're just lying and she wouldn't even hear me she wouldn't even let me spell it for her and I got in trouble so you know that was my introduction Mm -hmm. to school but it was not to be very very clear it wasn't my introduction to education and that's when Makani Mm. comes in because Makani taught me how to read she taught me beginning with hop on pop hop on pop she taught me how to read. She t- she has been my teacher from those early days, um, introducing wow. me to stuff. So that's that's between Makani and my mother. That's that was the source of my education, not school. 
And, and, and let me just say this too, that, um, Oddly enough, and this is going to seem so ironic now, right? Mm-hmm. But we were mm-hmm. tracked really differently. Um, so, um, you know, Robin was experiencing like the like, like the total jacked up track tracking, and I had what they called IGC classes, um, and it was different. Like the people were tracked; they were had basement classes. They have light. They're literally in the basement. That's right. <laughs> Um, and the IGC classes were oh on the top God. floor. So you had like sunlight coming in. It was like the most absolutely jacked up system. It's and trash. And I, and what I do appreciate about, you know, mom as she was, cause this was a really, you know, it was a really difficult thing for her. Mm-hmm. Like all of what she was going through, you know, we won't go into all the details of, you know, all the, the ways in which actually for the three of them, her, my, my, what, what, who I call aunt because she's older than me, but she's our cousin, yeah. Arlene and, and all of that was like, they were going through this major transition. Um, and, and also just a shout out to, to Arlene because she was really our protector. Yes. Um, so, you know, when, when mm. my father tried to, to, to come back and bully and pull us out of the place, she whooped his ass. I mean, she just wow. whooped his ass. And I mean, she did have judo and yeah. in fact, a love to our cousin who just lost his daughter, um, who was, uh, who's a longtime um, coach of the U.S. Judo Olympic team. So there's like right. a whole judo side of the family. Yeah, the, the Liddy family. Wow. Alexa Liddy who passed away. Alexa Liddy passed away. Mm-hmm. She's only 30. Yes, yeah, super, oh. super sad. And Eddie, Eddie, Liddy, and Claudie were Arlene's sons. Yes. And I should say that big Eddie, Eddie Sr., uh, established um, – a combination record store and judo school. That's right. Yeah, the dojo record store. Those things belong together. Right. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it was the first black owned one in Harlem, but yeah. he was, the, and so the whole family was judo. So when Arlene, Arlene could, they all did judo. So right. like my father wow. had to avoid them. Yeah. So yeah, she basically <laughs> said he was doing this and doing that. Not only did she judo his ass down the stairs, but then she took up stick. And then beat the shit out of him on top of that. And wow. and it was the first time I think that I felt safe. Cause I was like, you know, as crazy as it was, even though we were like all in the same bed, head, head, then feet, then head, then feet, and all the craziness, right? <laughs> Eating, you know, like fried chicken eggs and Arlene saying that, that what did she say they were rats or something or something crazy was so we'd shut up she and was, not ask questions you know? she would say, yeah, she would <laughs> She'd just say she had all kind of smart aleck yeah, things geez. but i mean as as an older person um i have so much appreciation for how they you know how they pull together how they develop like this sort of um this way of getting through without the men mm-hmm. um who were all abusive right um yeah and um and difficult and um and even though there was like all of these things i think the other thing that we learned during that time at least for me like i I'm, I'm so gr- i'm so grateful for the things that i got i felt like it was like after my experience right in little neck it was so crazy but but also what we learned was like the importance of of coming together like mm-hmm. that good things yeah. can happen when when people pull together not only in terms of that but also organizing you know like like there there was protests at our school that yeah. that our mom was involved in around the overcrowding yeah. 
yeah. of the school. You know, our school had a red, black, and green flag actually <laughs> as part of the. We actually had Iceberg Slim as a Black History Month speaker, which I don't even understand why when yeah. you think back on it. It's yeah, like, but wow. you also had. Um, we had uh, Nikki Giovanni. Yeah, Nikki Giovanni, but but you remember we, wow. we had. Um, uh, um, Talk about Marian Anderson. Yeah, Marian Anderson. Of course, I remember so, that. <laughs> so Makani actually gave wow. Makani at the assembly. I think it was like a corsage. Or yeah, something. in fact, I pricked Marianne her by Anderson. accident with a pin. I was. I don't oh, know why they were having this. Marian Anderson. I yeah, know. And that- she never sang the same since. <laughs> <laughs> That was when she retired. It was so <laughs> terrible. I was like, why are they giving a seven-year-old this long-ass pin and a flower to pin? Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it wasn't, it was like, yeah, it was, it was really bad. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Y'all, these stories are so amazing. I'm just, I'm over here, like, lapping it up. I, I'm. I wanna I wanted to pull this thread on the on organizing, mm-hmm. you know, because y'all have talked now about about your mother as an activist, about sort of getting sounds like inducted into organizing in part through just having to do that sort of immediate interventions on the systems that you were right in the middle of, right? right? Um but one of the other questions we had for y'all was around like one of the things that we've been asking a lot of the siblings is, you know, how would you describe your moment of kind of political awakening, politicization, the moment where you're sort of um, another way of thinking about it is like the sort of stepping off the cliff of like the way that your family was politically oriented into the space of, oh, there's this movement and I'm stepping into the river right, you know right. and and would love to just know a little bit about that moment for y'all and and how i mean given how i i really hear you makani is older but given how close in age y'all are <laughs> you know how <laughs> you know in, in our family adrian is really really older um <laughs> ancient i am so ancient it's really serious um, but yeah like how how distinct how distinct was that for the two of you? Right. How how much in concert did it happen? Right. Well, you know, I'll I'll start. Um, f- for me, it's waves. It's it's basically like two waves. And the first wave really picks up where McCartney left off. I mean, when you know, when my mom was pr- participating in protests around the school being overcrowded, she took us to those protests. I remember marching around in the cold saying, overcrowded, overcrowded. And, you know, we had wow. classrooms that were designed for 25 students with 50 students in them, you know. And oh this is God. also around the time, because, you know, given our age, um, this is around the time of uh, Ocean Hill Brownsville, uh, that is community control, uh, the struggle over, you know, who's going to teach the kids. And we had, mm-hmm. I had a great third grade teacher, Jane Andreas. Uh, who was very progressive. And in fact, um, the school tried to drive her out. And my mother, or our mother, was really one of three parents who defended her as she was wow. using kind of experimental methods of teaching. So that and the fact that she'd take us to places like, you know, the United Nations, uh, the fact that um, our mom did things that were completely out of the ordinary and didn't care she walked around the streets with no shoes. You know, she had a, she was kind of a hippie, you know, 
poncho, ah. long hair. Um, she, I remember the day that we were at um, at the museum and it was a big Buddha and my mom in front of everybody got on her knees and prayed to this Buddha. And Makani and I were like, what are we going to do? Are we going <laughs> to run? Should we go? Like, what are we going to do? Like, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> but, it's, but she was modeling a certain kind of behavior. She's saying that, first of all, there's some things greater than us, right? And you have yeah. to recognize that. Two is that whenever there's a fight, you go there and stand with the people, even if it's three people, you know? Mm. And so in some ways, that, especially living in Harlem in the 1960s, when every corner there's someone on the street talking about something, giving some kind of lecture, where, right, you know, right. I used to, I wrote about this, but there was a drink called Afro-Cola, yes. you know, that they used to sell. It came in a blue Afro-Cola? can with the Africa on it. And we drink that. It was probably killing us, right? <laughs> And of course, by some some white company, you know, but we used to drink it. (laughs) It's like the the nectar of the motherland, right? So we would drink it and you cannot go anywhere without being aware of of Africa, without someone coming up to you and saying, Habari Ghani, without being aware. And also you think about all the people who grew up in our neighborhood uh, in like 156, 157th between Broadway and Amsterdam. Um, It's just like politics there. But then the second... Wave, and then you, you grow up, you get older, you go to high school, and we end up in California for various reasons, which um, maybe we'll go into. But you know, when you're in high school, you care about things like I, I care about things like my hair. Back in the days of the shag, you know, I care about like having a silk s- scarf. I care about like, am I going to get a car, and what's my car going to look like? I care about parties and stuff like that. And it was the second wave when Makani goes off and she's always been an honor student. I've been like third rate. I'm, I'm, I'm still being tracked by the way. <laughs> it's like, that's why I got imposter syndrome, you know, but I was sort of third wave and she was always ahead. She was a leader at, at uh, Pasadena high school. She was, you know, outstanding student, blah, blah. blah. And then she goes off to college and what I really appreciated was everything she was learning, she'd figure out a way to pass it on to me. And I wasn't really listening at first, but that, without saying much more than that, that began the second more serious wave of reading, of thinking, of being active. And so by the time I got to college, I actually had at least an inkling of politics because mm-hmm. McConney was training me. Wow. <laughs> how wonderful. Yeah. I don't I don't know how how about for you, Makani? That always is, but oh thank you. Um <laughs> you know, um I had this really weird thing, right? That was like these super expectations that were just odd. You know, my grandmother when Dr. King died, right. my grandmother said to me, I had a I had a, like I I saw Dr. King come to me and say that um that you know and basically she like Dr. King gave instructions for what I was supposed to do with my life right, right? That's true. And it was like oh, pretty overwhelming. I was like eight, not even eight, <laughs> you okay. know. And, and she was just like, you know, Dr. King said that you're supposed to open these schools. Schools were too big and you there should be like neighborhood schools and that you should, you're going to like, 
you need to do this and organize this and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, even though in my seven-year-old body, I felt very grown, like there was a part of me that felt very grown, just small, right? Right. right. But I was like, I don't know about this. And, and even <laughs> as, and as much as I have done, and it's really not that much, like, I mean, educationally, I, I'm, you know, there's like all kinds of more things I could do educationally. I don't, you know, in terms of, you know, getting my degrees or all these things, but, but I would do things and my grandmother would come visit or come see me speak or whatever. And she'd go, you know, that was good, but it's, you're not doing what Dr. King said you're supposed to do. And so oh, actually, wow, so grandma. outstanding, whatever, whatever, you know, it just never quite was it. And literally, like, I mean, when Dr. King visits you in a vision, that's like a setup for it is really right. And, you know, and I was like, I was looking at my yearbook for another reason, because anyway, I won't even go into why, but there there is like an activist that's like, you know, that people were thinking was a youth activist who wasn't even. And I was like, I went to high school with her. She's not a youth activist. Like, here's her, like, <laughs> here's where she signed my yearbook, right? So I love oh, the petty. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. I love it. But anyway, just to, so I was looking at my yearbook and it was like full of like, in fact, what my, my best friend who, who I will see tomorrow jokingly wrote, well, you know, you're, you're not living up to the expectations right? because it was like, <laughs> Teachers would tell me that all the time. Like, you know, I would get an A in a class and they'd be like, well, you know, that was, you know, and and that's also something our dad would say. Like, oh, yeah. He would have yeah. this thing where people, some people call that the Asian and Asian F. Like he, he had that kind of F. Like if you didn't get yeah. an A, it was like an F. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I think that, um, so there's, so there's a part of me that never really absorbed whatever that outstanding thing was. And still don't, you know, it's like, you know, people go like, and I, and literally like when the thing with BLM happened, which is just the foundation, not the, right. I, I, yes. I was like, I hear my grandmother, like, it's still not what King said you do. So I was like, okay, damn. Wow. Um, yeah. But I, but you know, that said, you know, um, obviously the experience of, of being, you know, as Robin said, that wave. And I think in college, um, you know, already being sort of identified, which is a gift in many ways. It's a gift to be a black woman and people have high expectations of you. Like, I don't want to belittle that. Right. That's mm-hmm. like right. a, a, a thing that doesn't happen for a lot of folks. Um, so I came right. into school with that sense, like, well, I'm supposed to do stuff. And if there's something that's not being done, that's my job to do. Mm. And so I ended up um, becoming part of the basically leadership of organizing the statewide alliance of black students as a college in the, and becoming the first chair. And wow. so traveling to other campuses, right, organizing. And then I was also editor of the third, so-called third world newspaper, which is called The Blade, The Cutting Edge of Change. Um, that, yes, you know, yes, right? yes. Right. That those experiences and then also just being, you know, because we were college students. Right. So we were reading shit like Amilcar Cabral and stuff like that. That was just like blowing our Mm -hmm. little minds. And um, and I just felt like 
everybody, you know, like I had that evangelist, like everybody needs to know this shit. Like I was the first person to ever read it. Like it was just like, but also really grateful um, for folks like Cheryl Jeerman, you know, who um, was very close to Angela and and Fanya and who were like, like some elders who were like, mm-hmm. or Akinyeli Amoja, mm-hmm. or Rashida Mbambola, or, you know, folks like that. Because my freshman year, we, you know, there were so few Black people at UC Irvine, we had big brothers and big sisters. And Rashida Mbambola, they like looked at, they were like, oh, her ass is political. We're going to put her with the the political Black person. Oh, wow. And that's how I met the House of Amoja, mm-hmm. which really shaped so much of how I understand the world. And then, you know, like, and then moving, moving from that, oh, holding that still, cause I'm still close. Those are still family, right? The, mm-hmm. you know, the whole, you know, like the, the whole RNA and Napo and all those folks that shaped me. That's how I got my name. Right. Like I, obviously I didn't, I wasn't born Makani Temba, you know, um, you know, I, and, and that was like a really important point where it was like, not only is there like this, this sort of white, you know, messed up thing that's happening, that's white supremacy and racism, and then there's patriarchy, but there's also this beautiful community, you know, that you yeah. can be a part right. of, and you can understand like class and intersectionality and like all these things. Mm-hmm. And then also not only that, but it was a whole world. Because I got to meet people from all over the world. Right. Um, right. And that was completely life-changing. I mean, the I met Betty Shabbat. She was like the first, um, like, really feminine organizer that I met. Like, because a lot mm. of the organizers I knew were, like, more hard. They worked. Like, that was who I was modeling myself. I was wearing fatigues. You know, I was, like, doing all these things. Okay. And then I met this person who was, like, had all the politics. But she was like a mom and a grandma. And and I was like, oh, there's room for me to be my whole self. So yeah. I was so, oh. so, 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 so blessed. Right. Well, mm. yeah. in my senior in high school, I yeah. had the distinction of having thrown the party of the year. That's true. He did. Okay. Oh. Yes, the GQ affair. The GQ affair. Motherfuckers dance the heating so, bags ah! out of the floor. So this is, this is my trajectory. So I, I begin here, <laughs> party of the year. Um, and luckily for me, no one has high expectations. <laughs> right. Thank goodness. Um, although wow. I did live in Makani Shadow. Like what I got, I got something different. I did get like, how come you're not more like your sister? How come you're not more studious like your sister? How come you're not, you know, I got that my entire life. So in some Aww. ways- the expectations may not have been high, but they but there were some expectations. Meanwhile, yeah, yeah. Makani's hanging out with all these folks. I met Akinyele. Um, you should stop. Yeah, for the sirens. The sorry. Sirens. <laughs> yeah, we hear them. There we go. Okay. So I met I met Akinyele when I was, I think, in I might have been eleventh grade. Uh, and you know, he was working with Makani at Cal State LA at the time. And I remember him giving me some literature and just being inspired by the work they were doing, but really not knowing much about it. It wasn't until I got to college at Long Beach State. So I, I didn't go to UC. I went to California State University at Long Beach, which is, you know, kind of second tier state university. The, the fees were $90 a semester in those days. Uh, and, and that's when 
between the things that Makani's shuttling to me that she's reading, which includes mm-hmm. not just the Black nationalist literature, but the Marxist literature. I hook mm-hmm. up with um, a brother on campus who is really the one representative of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, Shabaka. And then we also, um, and also taking Black Studies courses. So the combination of those things together, you know, I was in a study group with, with the APRP. Um, and, you know, I'm reading Walter Rodney, C.L.R. James, Kwame Nkrumah, Kwame Nkrumah again, Kwame Nkrumah again. Um, and then, of course, some, you know, <laughs> Marx and, and Lenin. And that was transformative for me and then became involved in um, the Black Student Alliance. And in fact, Makani had already established the statewide alliance. I remember going to one of the meetings as, a, as vice chair of the, of the Black Student Union at Long Beach State um, uh, later, you know, and was just you know, was less an organizer. Although I did bring Queen Mother Moore to Long Beach State. Oh, And I got to wow. meet her. Um, wow, wow, wow. And that was like a huge thing. I mean, we, and, and brought her to speak. I couldn't get like 10 people in the room. And I had to, I had to go to the, to like this, um, uh, to the student union and just gather up Black folk to show up to hear her speak. So that was like my slow process of of kind of discovery. And but the most important thing was that that opened the door for my academic interests in in Black history in particular. And oh. like a lot of people in my generation coming up in the early eighties, um, I wasn't even interested in contemporary Black. I was initially interested in like ancient Egypt, you know, like everyone uh-huh. else, like yeah. people. Hotep. Hotep, right. It's like, that was my thing. And then, then I found I had to learn all these languages. It's like, no, I think I, I'll stick with the 20th century. So um, that, was, that was my entry. So I came, came that way. So, um, and then became, and then Makani and I end up in some of the same organizations later, uh, you know, uh-huh. left-wing organizations. Yeah. I Did mean, you want to say what you're yeah, initially- Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. We, um, yeah, I was so like, I became much more of a Marxist. Um, and although in those days, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, there, I didn't sense a deep contradiction between being a Marxist and a nationalist. No, I didn't. You know, oh, we just no, no. we just did both, and we just thought it made sense. Um, right. Like, I never disavowed the nationalism as I become much more of a Marxist. And, mm-hmm. you know, Makani basically recruited me into the Communist Workers' Party. Mm-hmm. And I joined right away. And so we were like... <laughs> doing this work for a couple of years around the time of the Jackson campaign. And she got involved. She was high up in the Jackson campaign in those days. And I'm just like a lowly worker. I love it. I love all of this. Like y'all, I mean, I think y'all should write a memoir together. Um, As I'm listening, (laughs) I'm just like the stories or to do an audio memoir. Cause I'm like, this I, I feel the tips of all the icebergs. Like we're like dancing from tip to tip to tip because <laughs> there's so many directions we could go in. Um and uh-huh. and and it's really rich stuff. Like this stuff, I feel like we just don't get enough of this. Like, how do we actually get on these paths? You know, what what are the both intentional and accidental ways we come across these ideologies that shape yeah. our lives? And um, and even hearing stuff like, oh, it didn't used to be like you know, so at odds, like you could, you could right. have that political complexity 
and, and be, be in the work, be about it in a different way. Um, and I, I'm curious, you know, and y'all can make this leap however you want to, right. Which was stories, whatever, but we want to ask what, in terms of what you're doing now, right. If we time travel from those early years and the, the left organizations, and then y'all both have created, you've written, you've published, you've shown up in movement as strategist and historian, what feels um, aligned about the work you currently do in the world and what feels distinct or different to you now? Oh, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I always feel like what Robin does feels aligned. I'm always, um, I'm always learning, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the depth and, um, nuance of his scholarship and reflections, um, are just yeah awesome and amazing. I feel like you know, and 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 even though you know we have to work, we're we're not that good at like making sure each other knows what we're doing like that. Yes, yes, it's, that's true. It's really, <laughs> you know. So I and I actually quite as is kept. I run his Facebook page, yes. right? And so <laughs> I am actually him on Facebook. So, oh my god, it's hilarious. And so I like wow. And so there'll be mentions, and I'll be like, oh snap, this is a really good interview. Let me post this. To his page, right? Um, and I read it, and I'm like, "Oh man, this is this is really important." Um, and I think, "Oh my god," I feel that way about my niece too, his daughter, who's also incredibly brilliant. Um, it's like, "Oh, I need to talk more about things." Like, but it always feels like we're so like like stuff is so crazy. Um, so yeah, I, I don't. There's in, there isn't anything that I've read of Robbins or, or that he does that I felt like wasn't aligned. I always feel inspired by it. I, I feel like where I am right now is, you know, there's, well, you know, there's a lot going on in the movement, a lot of layers. And so I find myself digging deeper into my spiritual practice. And that has a lot to do with my mother like things that I never thought I would do, like listening to Paramahansa Yogananda chants, like I do now, right? And it's like, yeah. wow, I'm just, I never thought I'd do that. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a meditator. Um, and I think about what does that mean in terms of black liberation and, 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 you know, you know, universal liberation, right? Like, or, or, um, multiversal, <laughs> like liberation. Yep like quantum physics, like, you know, I, I feel like I've become like a geek in, in its application to like how I work with people and how I think about, and also just as you, well, you know, Adrian, you know this, cause you know, we, we geek out on this stuff, but it's like, um, how we help people understand they're just a millisecond away from freedom. Right. Like, right there. um, mm-hmm. and right there, like just a breath away. And so I feel like, I feel like all of the things, my entire journey, the hard parts, the pain, the abuse, the things, the survival, the the places where I was, you know, the wrong one or just all the stuff, just like it, it feels like, I feel like, like the end of Siddhartha, like the river, <laughs> like, I feel like I'm at the river right now, still sorting out what everything is. Wow. I love that. What about for you, Robin? Yeah, it's, it's a really excellent an important question. I feel like we're always aligned. Um, and, and we're always aligned, not because we're always in conversation. You know, we should be. And I, 
and that's my fault. I'm I'm not in conversation with. I mean, I'm just like always running, 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 because I'm always behind doing so many things for other people. But um, we're always aligned. We always connect uh, without having to even talk about it. But you know, I discover Makani's writings. You know, not because she sends them to me. She discovers mine. We've done stuff together. We did the piece about Highlander after the, um, yes. the fire. We've done yeah. a few things together. But I wish we could do more. We're trying to do some, She's helping me now with my book, um, Black Body Swinging, it's thinking about Jackson and thinking about, well, mm. specifically, not just Jackson, but um, uh, yeah, the, a, a case in, in Mississippi, right? So, um, but... You know, I'm always, I'm sometimes the last time, last one to know. Like, I had to learn from Barbara Mansby that McConaughey took over the, the leadership of, of Black Lives Matter. Kind I mean, thank goodness for, for Barbara. Foundation. The, foundation. the BLM Global the Foundation. foundation. Mm-hmm. With Monique Mandela. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I know. I mean, she, she hinted at Found it, but of way. course, for uh-huh. security reasons, she couldn't really talk about it. But, you know, it's not that <laughs> we're hiding from each other. It's just that. Our lives are such that we just trust each other. And, but the one thing I have to say where we're, I won't say it's about alignment or non-alignment. We're very different people in terms of our relationship. Like I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I support movements, but I'm not an organizer. Mm-hmm. I'm like the last organizer. I'm, I'm a scholar, yeah. you know, I'm a writer. That's what I do primarily. And I'm very, you know, small C Catholic, uh, which is why I have friends in every single dueling movement, you know, and <laughs> one of my problems is that people come to me to be like, you know how McConaughey says she's a meditator. Well, they think I'm a mediator. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, you know, I don't do that. So they, I got people from coming from all sides, uh-huh. complaining, talking about this group and that group. And I'm trying to just sort of be connected because for mm. me i'm not a leader the movement is where i learn mm. i'm a student of movement and not just learn in terms of trying to write the story of movements learn in terms of trying to figure out a theoretical framework to understand the, our history that's right from what movements teach me you know and so that's where our roles are very very different and yet they're complementary in many ways mm. Oh. Wow. Thank God for y'all. <laughs> um, really appreciate the small C Catholic as a framework for <laughs> like how you're situating yourself. Um, uh, okay. We, it, it's, can y'all go just a little bit longer yeah, yeah, sure. than, okay. Because we have this one other question that we want to ask before we go to top culture, which is, um, <laughs> Makani's like I'm already anxious about top culture. Oh, I'm, I'm doubly anxious. <laughs> um, but the final, the final, which I wish wasn't the final. I just wish we could keep talking for hours. But um, the final question for the interview is: What do you wish the world knew about your sibling? Oh goodness. Hmm. Or what do you think the world should know? Yes. About your sibling. That's a great. That's a great question. You know, it's. One time, um, you know, I had to introduce Robin and they told me I only had a minute. So I ended up writing a poem 
which I feel I wish I had in front of me because I feel like all of those things in the poem were like all the things, right? You mm-hmm. know, because I was also annoyed they only gave me one minute, but I was like, fine. I'll show <laughs> if you want to send it to us, we will slip it in. We'll find a way. <laughs> I will. Yeah. I will send it to you. Um, but I think, aside from what people already know about his brilliant work and analysis, one is he works so hard. He works so hard. His work ethic is ridiculous, ridiculous. And it's something that started when he was young, you know, and um, and it never, never left. The other thing is he's a bomb ass cook. Um, and uh, coming, coming from the cook herself. Right. Uh, no, but he's he's really he's like more okay. of a chef than I am. And then mm-hmm. um, and then the other thing is that he is such an incredible caretaker like he's a you know a lot of times people think of that's all on the x you know chromosome and everything but it's like he is just such an amazing caretaker the way he loves people the way he makes sure they do what they need to do whether it's violin lessons or whatever that that's usually him right and so all that shit that people are asking him to do, so this is for the world. Like you're asking oh, him to okay. like mm-hmm. write these little blurbs <laughs> and do these things and comment and whatever. Just understand that he's got a full life, like a mama life. He's got like a mama life on top of his scholar life and okay. and does mm-hmm. it all. I mean, even though you, you know, when you do a lot of things, you feel like, oh my God, I'm not really, I don't know what I'm doing. How is it? He does it all amazing. <laughs> does it all amazing. That's what people need to know. And if you can get away with not asking him to do shit, think about it two or three times and figure out who else you might ask. I love this boundary you are setting for the world, for your sibling. That is sibling love. That is sibling also, love. I want to come to your next family reunion since both of you know how to come. <laughs> like, no, no, Makani's a real cook. She's got, she's got the, all the traditions, all the mm. traditions passed on to her. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, on the one hand, I'm like, I so appreciate the the boundary creation. That's that's actually really important. Um, I wish, <laughs> but she also hasn't seen me in like a year plus. So it's like, you're coming over to dinner tonight and we're probably going to do takeout. <laughs> <laughs> but probably you'll be the one to order it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, in terms of what the world needs to know about Makani, you know, um, there's so many things. In fact, her... The fact that she runs my Facebook page and that she announces uh, to the world that I need protection is is exactly her personality. I mean, she, you know, she taught me, she raised me, you know, she protected me, but she protected me. Um, you know, like she would fight for me, like physically fight. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't even remember having a fight. Because it got, you know, Makani was my, my big sister, you know, wow. and there's so many things she's done both as a kid and as a grown person to to protect not just me, but everybody. Um, the her Our family, her kids, movement people, she is courageous and selfless in terms of standing up, you know, even even when the circumstances are not clear. She's not going to step back and say, well, let me just assess it and see you know, what the outcome is going to be. She'll jump in the fight right away. And she's always been that way, you know, always. But protect her, you know, and, and, and 
I so appreciate that. But in addition to that, she's a great parent, you know, and a lot of people don't see that because what you see is the public persona. You see, you know, Makani traveling around, doing this work. But to be a great parent means you have to be present and you have to be able to listen. And she's not just a parent for her biological kids. She's a parent for other kids. You know, and I won't go into that whole story, but she t- she takes care of. Uh, she's been taking care of kids, even even when the f- the father of those kids don't seem to be that interested. You know, um, and so who does that, right? Uh, she's a great auntie for my children, you know, and she's just a regular black woman, you know, in the best sense of the word. You know, yes. not trying, mm-hmm. you know, not trying to be above everything. She's not the black bourgeoisie. And then I hate the black bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. Sometimes, <laughs> though, my shoes are just my black bourgeoisie. <laughs> you have yeah, some fancy she, things. The red bottoms. <laughs> fancy things that don't make you the bourgeoisie. Before we move into the top culture, just want to thank y'all for the range and vulnerability of the stories that you shared with us. Because it just feels yeah. like there's so, I feel like I can't wait to go back and just kind of listen and listen and listen in mm-hmm. um, to this wisdom. And I'm not kidding. I'm like, I would publish y'all's y'all's um, shared memoir or stories, you know? I just I, love that you're at a point in your career yeah. where you can say that. Oh, like, I would. I would publish it, right? I would publish it. I, right? I, um, I still owe you the book that I owe you, so I want to get that done. Yeah, I mean, we we've got a few, Makani. We've got a few, um, and I'm patient. Know. You know, I'm patient. I'm just like all. That's all I, I want to do you now for that. Is make make black people make more books. So we're gonna shift into this top culture space and. Um, like we said, it's really like, what is top culture for you? Like, what are you turning towards? What's getting you through this moment right now? And Autumn, why don't you model for us, since you have something that's like current and you just did. Top, 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 Um, Look, here's the reality. I haven't actually, I hadn't been in a movie theater in so long that there's no way for me to know if the movie was good or not. I just know that the experience of being in a movie theater to see a movie was top culture. Mm -hmm. I went to see, over the weekend, I went to see A Quiet Place Part Two, Mm. which I had patiently waited for, right? Because they kept being like, no, we're not going to do the HBO thing. We're not going to do the Disney Plus thing. We're literally just going to wait until theaters open up again. Because it would not be scary enough. And so I waited and waited, and then it... Because it wouldn't be scary enough for a small screen, and they were right. It is a movie that is 100% made to be seen on a big screen, and it is fucking terrifying. It is like, it is any parent's worst nightmare, that movie. Both the first part and the second part is just a parent's absolute worst nightmare, like newborn baby, monsters that hunt by sound only. Worst nightmare. Um and it was, but it was so delightful to just, I was that person who walked into the theater and was like, I combined my popcorn and I was like, I'm so excited to be here. I haven't been in a movie theater in so long. And the cash register person is like, I'm not saying anything in response to what you just said. She just didn't respond. But I was so excited. I was so excited to sit in the movie theater. I was like smiling at all the people around me. 
Um, and one of the things I will say is I, I think based on that one experience, mm. I only have one data point, but I think this might be true, <laughs> that I think people's movie etiquette is going to be better post-pandemic. I noticed that people were not talking and laughing through the movie. Now, it was extremely terrifying. So that might be why there was no noise in the theater. But people were very quiet. And then they sat after it was over. No one wanted to leave the theater. (laughs) I mean, y'all remember going to movies before the pandemic? Like as soon as the credits roll, people are like mm-hmm. climbing mm-hmm. over each other to get out of the theater. That didn't happen. People just sat there and experienced the credits rolling. Um, so I thought my top culture was going to be the movie. But now I'm thinking my top culture is just the experience of being in a movie theater and being terrified and scream jumping. And oh, it was so good. It was so, so good. And I'm planning to hopefully take in the Fast and Furious, the new (laughs) Fast and Furious movie. I'm still catching up. I'm still catching up in the whole saga, but I'm hoping to catch up enough so that on Sunday night I can go see the F9. There's not, okay, nine. This is the ninth one. And my crush, Charlize Theron, is in it. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to be where she is. There you go. That's exciting. That's my top Thank you so much for modeling that. Um, Thank you. Robin McConney, do y'all have something that's clear for you? Like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, one there's a part of me, Autumn, that wonders how many black people were in that movie, like theater. Like, if there was no talking, like, I wonder. I, I'm, I'm just like, you know, because actually, I'm not a horror movie fan, but really, the only, the only thing I really love about going to see horror movies is when black people have talk back to it. There, it's kind of like. My like, thing. I, yep. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I remember like seeing Carrie in high school and there's a part where the knives go foof, foof. And someone said, pop locking. And they just went and pop locked through that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like things like that. So um, I think, you know, um, food has been, even though I'm trying to change my relationship with it, um, has been like a really um, important thing for me <laughs> during mm-hmm. the pandemic, especially I spent most of it, like the vast majority of it alone. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so it's been, so for me, it's been really cool, like connecting with these political food communities. Mm-hmm. And so part of that has been learning through um, these collectives and, and the, you know, shared recipes and things like that, Palestinian cooking, mm. um, learning about Ooh. the culture. And, and so my kitchen, like I have like a whole part of my kitchen. That's like all of the new spices and syrups and flavors and things mm. and, and just, and, and the new books that are coming out that are benefiting, um, you know, some the collectives that are there, like the olive collectives and so many things. And, and I just have to say, I just, I love the stories. I love yeah. the connection. And I feel like, man, you know, another reason to hate white supremacy, colonialism, and patriarchy is mm-hmm. like, they fuck up your whole food thing, right? Like there's all yeah. kinds of people you would be hanging out with, right? Eating and yep. cooking together yep. and loving on each other instead of, um, you know, the kind of war and 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 craziness um Mm. and so to be in that to that space to be in space with people to to hear their stories and also to to be in this thing that i love with food and politics together 
This makes me super mm-hmm. happy. Delicious. So should I go? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was. I was terrified by this question because I, I don't have time to, to watch or see anything. I. I. We do have movie night, uh, with okay. our ten year old daughter Seku, uh, and so I've been watching pretty consistently things that ten year old kids like. And in the case of Seku, it's either Godzilla. Or it's so an Eddie Murphy awesome. movie. I love Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> With kids, I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, Godzilla's awesome. Godzilla is awesome. <laughs> so we watch a lot of, I think, every single Godzilla movie. <laughs> um, but in terms of my top culture, um, you know, and I'm trying not to name drop here, but I did, you know, was able to develop a kind of working relationship with this wonderful singer, uh, Cecile McLaurin Salvant. Uh, mm. Who was on my show, so my podcast? So, I'm only one step ahead of heartbreak, one step ahead of misery. She's also an amazing artist who is uh, making a, an animated uh, feature, uh, black feminist animated feature. Ooh. I won't say much more than that, but. Ooh. It's like being able to talk to her and learn from her and like listen to her music and see her artwork. And, you know, we all together, we actually contributed to um, uh, the liner notes for a new uh, Earl Garner box set that's coming out um, oh, wow. I think in September. To look out wow. for. And so it was her, Terry Lynn Carrington and myself. Ooh. So it's like, what can I say? Okay. It's like, what can my you life say? is good. Yeah. My life is my top culture. <laughs> that's, that's my top culture. <laughs> what can you say? What? That's excellent. That's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. My life is my top culture. Is, maybe that's a t-shirt. We'll, we'll credit you. Um, so I would say my additions are, um, one is there's this band that we kind of have like a crush like between our show and their band um, called Tune Yards. And they just came out with a new album called Sketchy that is awesome and was in part inspired by this show like was inspired by mm. the apocalypse miniseries wow. that autumn did awesome. last year um but there's this particular song on there called hypnotized it's just like look into my eyes i literally am walking around <laughs> you know in this post-pandemic look like walking around outside just like look into my eyes look into my eyes like <laughs> So top culture to me is when something gets in my head and I can't quite shake it out. Like the music mm-hmm. has, feels like the soundtrack of right now. Um, my second top culture is I'm watching Real Housewives of Atlanta and I wasn't planning to, but I got pulled in. Um, I got pulled in and this might be good research for you, Connie, because one of the characters is is part of BLM. This One of the people is like, wow. I'm... Rolling with Black Lives Matter right now. It's amazing, <laughs> fascinating to see like what someone who, yeah, how so, how it's part of the Black bourgeoisie, yeah, and also black bourgeoisie, 
(laughs) showing up and like it's the thing right i'm like oh this is the celebrity activism that people be talking about and what does that look and feel like um so i was like i'm curious about it but i was also more curious about the fact that she ends up with someone's husband who she's friends with on the show and i was like how does that happen so i'm watching it's fascinating it's petty it's it just it makes me relax a little bit because i'm just like everyone's a mess and i'm like but not that kind of mess we're doing okay. Like we're uh-huh. actually communicating <laughs> pretty good. Like we use mediation and like we're doing all right. So, right. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that I like to stay in touch with like, what, what are, what is black culture up to on, you know, like what is the trending culture of blackness um, mm-hmm. as we're trying to shape the future of blackness. And then the other thing, which I don't think I spoke about this yet, Autumn, but I got to visit my sister. So we got to be together uh, last weekend or I guess the weekend before. And I got to like watch two weeks ago, a movie yeah. called Raya and the Last Dragon. Was that what it was? Raya and the Last yes, Dragon? Yes, that's one of the things we saw. It's yes, so it's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Well, it was so gorgeous. And emergent strategy infused. Like it felt like one of those things where it's just like, oh, like partnering with nature, <laughs> mm-hmm. finding your place inside of the natural flow of the world and listening to that that which is larger than yourself. I just felt like it was a really beautiful thing. Like I was like, this is one of those things where I'm like, I'm watching this with children, but I'm going to come back and watch it by myself, um, mm-hmm. maybe in an altered yes. state so that I can just experience more <laughs> of the layers of what got produced in it. It's really quite, quite lovely. So mm. we did it. We made it through the terror of top culture. Um, and, <laughs> wow. and we made it through this really incredible show with y'all. Um, we are so grateful for your precious time and that you shared this first hour and a half of togetherness after a year and a half of apartness together with us. We're really grateful. Yeah. Um, well, so honored. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm honored too. And what better way to spend it than with both of you? You know, it's my, my big sister. So sweet. Aww. We love y'all so much. So much love. I'm very full right now. I don't yeah. don't even know if I have all the words. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> That's okay. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredible thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're an iPhone person, thank you. I think you can put a review anywhere you want to. Graffiti a review on the wall. Like, just tell people about us. In the uh, email so, account. Yes. How to on survive the Instagram the end- page. <laughs> like, somewhere, wherever you do things, tell them. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the sweet, sweet and kind Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg.